to this episode of Nikki Jameson Art Talks, a podcast where we artists talk about our creative lives. I'm Nikki Jameson, and today my guest is a talented teacher, pianist, and music director, Matthew Craig from Toronto, Canada. Okay, everybody. Hello and welcome to another episode of Nikki Jameson Art Talks. And today my guest is Matthew Craig. And I'm really happy to welcome Matthew because he has such an interesting background and in life. He's going to talk to us about himself and his musical theatre, um, dancing, teaching. Matt's just got so many strings to his bow. So I'm really looking forward to talking with him. So Matt is here in Toronto and we've known each other for a while, right, Matt? Uh, let's see. Thank you. That was a very nice introduction, Nick. Uh, okay. How long have we known each other? I, is it, is it 10 years? Is it almost 10 years now? I think it might be more than 10 years, Matt. I think we, I think I met you. I think we met we met in the Modern Jive class, remember? And that yeah. was before 2010. So it might actually be, have been since 2009 or something like that. That's something unreal. like that. That's yeah, anyway, let me, let me ask you, Matt, to please introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. Tell us a bit about your, your story and uh, let's hear. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Matt. <laughs> I've known Nikki for over 10 years, apparently. <laughs> um, wow, what's my story? I mean, I guess I could say I'm a teacher. I teach high school science uh, at the Community Hebrew Academy of Toronto. I've been teaching there for 10 years. Uh, my specialty right now is physics, engineering, and computer science. Although some years I also teach uh, junior science in grades 9 and 10, which makes sense because I've always loved science, even when I was a kid. I actually have memories of when I was in kindergarten, and you have all those picture books in that little kindergarten bookshelf. And me and my friends would always go towards the, well, we love the Sharks one. Sharks was big and Astronauts was big. So as long as I can remember, I thought space was really cool. Wow. So it doesn't surprise me that I ended up going into actually space sciences. I studied at York University. I was in a program called uh, Space and Communications Physics Stream. Although when I first started, I was actually a biology major and I switched out of that in my second year. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I was. When I came out of um, high school, I loved biology and I loved physics equally. And I didn't know what to study. I got a scholarship to York University. And that was when I thought I was going to be a doctor. Wow. Although I knew that you didn't have to study biology to be a doctor. I was well aware. But I liked it in high school. And it, I wanted to be a half major in computer science and programming and a half major in something else. And it was either physics or biology. And in my first year, I chose biology. Um, and I, a couple things happened in my first year. The first thing is I realized that I didn't actually care about being a doctor. Mm. I, I remember growing up, I loved my pediatrician. His name is Colin Geft. He still works in the same office, actually, which is a couple blocks away, is where I used to see him 40 years ago almost. No joke. Wow. Um, and he was uh, he was the nicest guy. And I didn't like having to go to the doctor, but I always liked seeing him. And he always had toys in his in his office. And I still remember that he had these large framed jigsaw puzzles. And I would go in. So I have terrible allergies. I've had it my whole life. And I would go get these allergy shots 
these uh, it was basically like a prophylactic allergy shot to hopefully keep your allergies under control. Right. So I would go in every week or every two weeks or every three weeks to get an allergy shot. Um, and he he always did the same cheesy thing when he gave me a needle. He would always he would always say, "Okay, I'm going to count to three and then give you a needle," and then he would say one and then he'd give you the needle on two as if you wouldn't notice every week. <laughs> He had this framed puzzle of the scene from E.T., where E.T. is hiding amongst the stuffed animals in the closet. Right. Which is funny. I've never actually seen E.T., but I know that that's a scene because he had that jigsaw puzzle. And I still remember that jigsaw puzzle when, when I went to visit him. So, um, and of course, when you're a kid, it's obvious the high regard that everybody holds for doctors. So I thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, I got into first year university. I was in biology class, and I don't remember who was talking and what the context was, but somebody was talking about what you needed to become a doctor and, and how much you needed to want it and how competitive it was and how much volunteer work you had to do. And I listened to that and I, it just occurred to me that I didn't think I really wanted to be a doctor. They were describing the, the, the ways you needed to be in order to get into medical school. And I heard all those things and I realized I don't actually care that much. I don't think I really want to be that, that much. And so, that was probably part of the reason that I left biology. But another reason is that biology is notorious in university for having brutal multiple choice tests. <sighs> really? I don't know if you know this. Yeah, it's well known for having like, you know, they're, they're asking some weird question about a neurotransmitter and there's option A and there's B and there's C and then D is A and B and E is A and C. You know what I mean? And yeah. F is A and C and G is none of the above. You know, and then and, and H is, you know, A and B on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but C on every alternate Saturday. So I had a hard time with it. And also, I just didn't enjoy it that much. And I, I thought, you know what, maybe I'll like physics. And they had a, a specialty program there called Space and Communications. And in my second year, I switched into that. Um, and I guess I enjoyed it more and I stuck with it. So, so that's what I studied. And then I eventually ended up being uh, a physics teacher. Um, which kind of branched out into computers a few years ago in engineering now, because my my high school has a very steadily growing engineering program, which is an absolute blast to teach. That's wonderful. Very easy to teach, though. If you're a teacher and you have courses that are based on project work, that means there's less time talking in front of the class. Right. And so when I teach when I teach physics and when I teach general science, despite my best efforts, there's still a significant amount of time talking in front of the class. Which yeah. is, you know, called Socratic teaching. And when you teach something like engineering, it's all project based or computer science. When I teach computer programming, I teach it in Python. It's the same thing. I can give them a five minute primer on why what we're doing is important. And I give them just enough tools to start exploring. And then I go, here's what you got to figure out. A, B, C and D call me over. And that way I can spend, you know, 50 minutes out of an hour class just walking over to the students who need the help and letting the ones who don't get on with their work. So I really enjoy that. So that's what I teach. And then, of course, I do tons of music. That's the other yeah. thing that I do. So, Matt, how did you get how did you actually start doing music? Because, I mean, you're a fantastic pianist and you must have started that when you were a lot younger. Is that is that correct? That is correct. OK. When did you start? Uh, when did you start playing the piano? So I don't remember the exact age, but. I think it was around six years old. My father is a classical clarinetist. And when I was a kid, I, that was the first thing that he tried to teach me. And uh, so far as the story I remember, um, my hands were too small to play clarinet at that age. And we had a piano. And so he decided to put me on piano lessons. Um, 
And he had a friend. I think they knew each other from synagogue, but they played music together uh, named Nathan Rosen, who was my first piano teacher for at least 10 years, maybe 12, 13 years. Mm. Um, and Nathan, to this day, is still the greatest sight reader of piano I have ever seen in my entire life. And that includes people that I've seen on YouTube, like if the YouTube video is watch how amazing this sight reader is, it, it includes them. Although, of course, I'm trying to remember something from 35 years ago. So I might be I might be remembering it in a way that's better than it actually was. <laughs> but, you know, this was also back in the days where you could go to garage sales and buy sheet music for piano very easily. Right. So we would go to a garage sale. We would buy sheet music like uh, movie themes, for example. And Nathan, we would just open up to like the Batman movie theme and Nathan would just sight read it on the spot instantly as, as, as easily as any of us could read a book right now. You pull up the book and you read it effortlessly. That's how he was at sight reading. My brother Jeremy and I were just amazed. This was the coolest ability we had ever seen. He had the Batman theme music by Danny Elfman right there at his fingertips. I also remember us getting the sheet music to The Simpsons, the Simpsons theme from the, the cartoon from TV. Yeah, uh, which is which is a very difficult piece to play that I it, like even with practice, I have difficulty playing it. And I remember Nathan's sight reading it effortlessly. So my brother and I seeing that when we were kids, that was a huge motivation for us to want to learn to play piano. Wow. Um, and so it it was easy for me to be motivated to practice. Right. I don't remember ever being like, oh, my God, I don't want to practice. I mean, I had my conservatory books that I had to play through, which weren't the most fun. But just having that end goal, being able to see that end goal in somebody else, knowing what was possible, that made it easier for us to practice. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I meet a lot of people who they see me playing piano and they're just amazed. And they see, you know, they say, I, I wish I had your ability. I tried piano. I didn't like it. And so I never kept it up and all that. Um, and sometimes I wonder if they didn't keep it up because maybe their parents weren't really musicians. They just thought it would be a good thing to put their kids in. And so the kids didn't really see uh, how it was important to their parents. And maybe they didn't keep it up because they didn't have as inspiring a piano teacher uh, or sight reader as I had. That's very interesting. That's very interesting because you are an amazing piano player. I mean, I remember when we went to your uh, recital some years ago, and I wish you'd do more. Maybe you're too busy, but that was it, it was out of this world. It was out of Thank this you. world. But I think we'll get to that with some of the future questions. Sure. OK. Uh, uh, so, yeah. Sorry. I was also going to say that uh, I also had some memories of just um, eating dinner with my parents and my father, you know, had a record collection and we had just classical music records that he would play. And uh, the Chopin's heroic, heroic Polonaise, which is arguably one of the most famous piano pieces. Uh, I remember my brother and I just loving that piece. And I remember uh, my father putting on Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. It's the second movement in the, th uh, the second theme in the third movement, um, which was actually used in a movie that my mother always tells me about called, I think, Brief Encounter, but I've never seen it. It's this beautiful theme. Um, and I remember hearing it at dinner and my mother talking about how great it was. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is incredible. Um, and then there was one other record that I used to listen to. It was called, I can't remember. It was like a standard piano classical repertoire of, of piano favorites. I can't even remember the artist who performed. 
Right. It was Joseph Campbell, maybe. I don't remember it. But it had a recording of Claire de Lune, and that was the first time I heard it, which is, you know, arguably everybody's favorite piano piece of all time. Um, and, and it was my favorite piano piece once I heard that recording. So, so we always had, my brother and I always had things to look up to and things that amazed us that we wanted to work towards. Wow. That's, uh, so you, you, so you've always been playing piano. How did you get into, cause you're also a music director. Let's go on to that, uh, next, next piece and been to the plays that you've, uh, you've directed. How did you get, how did you get into that? So that's a byproduct of being a good sight reader. Oh, really? Uh, how? Yeah. So I talked about how Nathan Rosen was the best sight reader that I've ever seen. Uh, yeah. Still to this day, um, people see me playing and they regard me as an excellent sight reader. So uh, because I keep hearing that enough, I just figured, OK, I guess I'm an excellent sight. Um, and, you know, you do it for your, you know, 20 years or however long I've been sight reading for and, and you're going to get good at it. Uh, but I started to get pretty good at it. I would say in my teenage years, maybe 16, 17, 18. Um, and that was of course, because I, you know, I really put in my 10,000 hours plus of, of work. My father kept bringing home music from garage sales and I just put them in front of me and read through them because I wanted to do what Nathan Rosen could do. And so, so uh, this, it, how I got involved in music theater kind of goes back to high school. Now, um, I, once I was in high school, I was playing clarinet in the band, which turned into alto sax. Um, and I'd always not liked singing, and I'd always been embarrassed uh, about it. But when I got to Forest Hill, which was my high school, my sister, who was always a singer, sang in the jazz choir. Mm. And they sang this number called Birdland, uh, which is just this really great, classic, catchy, uh, old, old jazz number. Um, and I loved it. And I was like, Jesus, this is singing? <laughs> uh, and, and the very next year, I auditioned for the choir, for the jazz choir, which was kind of the more elite choir. And and as as is commonly the case, if you're a boy and you can hold a pitch and sing a harmony, you will generally be allowed into any school choir really? um, because of the lack of boys. Yeah. And so so I joined that and uh, I also joined the regular choir. And there I met two of my best friends, uh, my best friends, Terry and Mark. I met in that choir and Terry and Mark had both been uh, I don't know if they were ever campers, but they were both staff members at the age of 18 at a camp called the National Music Camp of Canada. This is an overnight camp that takes place at Camp Wahanawan, which is uh, in Aurelia, which is, you know, an hour and a half outside of Toronto. Um, and basically after the, the Camp Wahanawan ends in the last two weeks of August, kids come up and there's two weeks of overnight camp to play music. And they told me how great a time they had at it. And so they invited me to go up the next year. And I went up my first year, I was uh, 19. I can't remember if I was on music theater staff that first year because I played piano or if I was on saxophone staff. I think I was probably on saxophone staff in the first year. And then in the second year, I went to music theater because I played piano. Um, and that was the place. National Music Camp of Canada was the place where I got introduced into music theater. And it all snowballed from there. So this is the place where if you play strings, you, you know, you'll play in the string ensembles. If you play brass, you'll play in the brass ensembles. There's a jazz camp. Um, and there was a music theater camp and I found my, myself in the music theater there. And, um, no, oh yeah, there's, before I get to the music theater, I have this other note about accompanying other staff performers, right? So I, I was one of the better or best piano players in the general staff. They had accompanists though, professional accompanists who were much better than me. 
But in the general staff, I was one of the best piano players. And so I was asked by a lot of the performers there to accompany them. So I would play piano for singers or, or you know, a, a tuba player or you name it, a violin player. Um, and it became clear to people that I was a pretty good player and I was a pretty good sight reader. And I think that's why I moved into music theater the next year. Right. Now, music theater had a faculty member named uh, Lawrence Oswald, um, who was an incredible jazz player and sight reader who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. But he was the the official sort of the faculty accompanist there um, who I looked up to. And I was a staff member who would help out with like other vocal classes because he couldn't be in three places at once. And we tended to split the groups up into three. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I was. And the woman who ran music theater there for years and years, her name was Barbara Young. Um, who was just a real, real, um, I mean, she was a pro. She was as pro as pros get. She knew how to put together music theater and she knew how to do it quickly. Uh, and she wasted no time. She was sharp and, and she could be quite cutting. Um, and, but I, I attribute that to, to how good she was at putting together music theater programs. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I was with her and when I was playing piano for her classes, that was the first time I saw how music theater was taught. Uh, and she moved very quickly and she was very decisive. And um, I'm pretty sure that's where I got the basis of my style, actually, from her. Mm. So, Matt, um, so, Matt what yeah. is, so what is music theater as opposed to just for people who may not know, as opposed to like ordinary theater? Is it music? Is it theater that's composed completely of songs uh, like a musical or what How would you describe it? It can be. Well, it's, it's a stage production that it's comprising of acting, generally choreography, as well as singing. OK, so some some music theater productions are classified as operas like Les Miserables because there isn't a single spoken line. Every line is sung. Um, so you could think of it as like an opera, but they tend to have more speaking lines. And they tend to be <laughs> I mean, if you're seeing them in, in North America, they, they tend to be in English. Ah, and and obviously there are there are there are vastly different styles that they make them quite different from operas. But it means you're going to see a play, and the performers are also singing, sometimes right. dancing, depending on the play. Okay, great. Yeah, I thought that might be it, but for people who may not be familiar with it, I thought it would be really good for you to just describe what it, what they sure, are. Sure, sure. Yeah. Should I keep yeah. going here? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll try and. Yeah, I know I tend to. I have. No, it's it's very interesting. It I is really interesting. Notes, but I didn't realize how long it would take me to get to. Get, <laughs> yeah. um, it's okay. always quite a shock. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so okay. So I was I was accompanying in music theater in uh, national music camp, and then uh, you know at, at NMC I started to make connections with other staff members and other people who were uh, in music theater. Um, I don't remember how, but I ended up doing some community theater shows for Scarborough Music Theater as the piano player. So I started making more connections there. Um, And once I started to realize that playing for music theater was a lot of fun, I remember emailing summer camps one year at work uh, to try and get involved in summer camps. And from there, I worked. uh, I got a job at No Strings Theater, which is like a teenage music theater company here in Toronto. I'm not sure if they're still going, but I worked for them for a few summers. And then at No Strings Theater, I met another pianist music director named Jordan Zaza, uh, who was awesome to work with. Um, And she was kind of on her way out at No Strings Theater. And I was on my, uh, I I was there sort of working with her. And she was working for another teenage music theater company in Toronto called Children's Arts Theater School. And she was on her way out of there, and she introduced me to the woman who ran that, whose name was Gina Anke. And I got in touch with Gina, and then 
that was really where things kind of exploded. Once I started working for Children's Arts Theater School, I was finally actually music directing shows. Um, and with, with Cats is what we called it. With Cats, I probably did seven or eight shows, although I can't even remember all of them. I think we saw some of them. Uh, you probably did, yeah. I also got in touch with a woman named Melissa Bensick, who runs another theater company called Bravo Academy here in Toronto. I can't remember how I first got in touch with her, and I've done a couple of shows with her as well. And she is a, she is just a phenomenal teacher and runs a phenomenal program too. Um, I I actually uh, I would love to get more work with her and her company, but <laughs> she actually has better people to do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, she's got some she's got some real. She, uh, Dan Rutson is is a guy that that works for her, but he is a, he is a he's phenomenal. He's a real pro. Like he does this for a living. He has studied music theater performance and conducting and arranging. So, you know, he's kind of beyond me. I, I do this as a side job and I'm just lucky enough to be a good enough piano player and I've had enough experience. I also have a lot of friends who play piano because I make connections. So when they can't do gigs, they often call me in. So I meet people that way. Um, and then just more recently, I do a lot of music theater shows uh, for chat where I work. Um, and because of that, I, I did music theater shows with Richard Delin, who is a math teacher at Chat. His brother, Neil, runs a charity music theater show called the Barbara Pinchuk Unsung Heroes Project. And because I knew Rich and um, I got introduced to Neil and then I got involved with them. And then I've been doing a number of their shows over the past few years. Yeah. So it, one thing that's really clear, and I kind of knew this, but I just didn't until you actually said it, you make connections with everything you do and you know one thing leads to another and you meet people through that is is that something you just do consciously or you just naturally do it you know the, the truth is um it's i think it's because i'm a good player mm -hmm. do i go out of my way to make connections a couple times certainly when i sent those emails out but but generally now i get enough work out of either word of mouth or my other friends who can't do it and need somebody to cover I don't know if I ever really sought out work except for that one summer. It's just that enough people know me now. And mm -hmm. once you go to national music camp, I mean, you meet all the staff and the faculty there. And then, you know, that's that's a hundred connections. Yeah. yeah. People who all of a sudden, if the piano player can't make it, they will give me a call. And if you do a good job, people take notice. And um, I mean, just in, in the past month or so, I've been approached by two new people. So I, I, I also play, I, this is so funny. I, ma I made a Kijiji, oh, this is another thing. If, if we talk later about Kijiji, I have a Kijiji ad for my piano service. But uh, through a Kijiji ad, I got contacted by um, a singer who sings at retirement homes named Bernice Gopin. And she, funny enough, she actually lives two blocks away from me. And she contacted me because uh, her other piano player could do some gigs. And funny enough, her other piano player happened to be a friend of mine who does give me <laughs> gigs. But I didn't know until I met her. Um, and so I, I occasionally do gigs with her at retirement home. She sings like great American songbook standards. You know, Memory from Cats and, uh, yes, you know, um, what's that Willie Nelson song? I love it. Uh, you were always on my mind. Stuff oh, like that. Yes. The clown. She's got a great repertoire to sing at retirement homes. Um, and I, I, you know, I played piano for her at a, a gig lately and then a woman took down my number and then I didn't remember who she was, but it was like a month later. She called me yesterday to ask if I could accompany her. Um, and because of Robbie, the same guy who couldn't do that gig, I got involved with, um, a couple of choirs in North York cause he could no longer do it. And both of those choirs performed at the same gig at, for a, a Jewish music night festival. 
And yeah. there, the conductor of another choir that I was not involved in saw me playing and approached me after the show and asked me if I could play for her choir as well. Sometimes it happens that way where somebody sees you playing, really likes it, and approaches you afterwards. That's happened to me a number of times. Yeah. Okay, so Matt, tell us, tell us about um, your, fa- your favorite musicals. Do you have any um, favorite musicals that you've directed? Is there any one that you enjoyed most? And if so, why? Yeah, I wrote down a few of them that had a, an impact on me. Um, let's see. Right. Okay. I think my favorite experience in a musical was not one that I music directed, but I conducted the band and played piano. Uh, this is a company called First Act. I think they're called First Act Productions. I'd have to look it up. Uh, the woman who runs it, her name is Nicole Strawbridge. And I met her through Bravo Academy when I worked on one of the shows. And um the music director of this show, his name is Sam Moffat. He taught all the music, but he was a lead performer in the show. So they needed somebody to play piano and to c- conduct the band. So I got called in. The show was Little Women, the musical, which when I heard it did not sound that interesting to me at all. <laughs> um, but it sounded like a fun gig. They called me in and asked me if I could play piano and conduct the band. And when I got there, it turned out that the band was something like 12 musicians or so. I've never conducted a band that large. Typically, I conduct a bass player, a guitar player, and a drummer, and you know maybe second keyboards. But when you've got a full band with um, string instruments and wind instruments and brass instruments, um, it was um, it was amazing. It was amazing, and and the the music in Little Women um, has enough enough depth that. There, there's enough room for me to apply some artistry to it. Okay, when you do a musical like um, Grease, let's say, the the music is all like really you know stupid rock pop type song, right? Mm, There's not really any depth to it, and uh, you know I hate to say this, but for a lot of songs in shows like that, there's not much to do aside from say five, six, seven, eight, and the band starts, and then you just play until the end of the song. (laughs) <laughs> um, but in Little Women, and actually to a lesser extent in Les Miserables is great too. In Little Women and Les Miserables, there, there were some very emotional songs. And there's a lot you can do with playing around with dynamics, um, with rhythmic phrasing, with pausing in the music um, to really maximize the emotional impact. And because I had a full band with, with different instruments, I was able to do that in Little Women the Musical. And I remember this one song. It's a really heartbreaking song. It's called Some Things Are Meant to Be, which is sung between two sisters um, as, as they, they realize that one of them is going to die. I think it's from Scarlet Fever. I can't remember the names of the sisters. It's a really right. sad song. And I remember sitting at my piano thinking about what I wanted to do with a band in order to sort of maximize the emotional impacts. I, I decided what I was going to do, and I, I recognized some things, and, and it ended up being sort of a really amazing experience in the theater that you could, you could really feel it in the audience during that number. Mm. Um, so that was, that was a really good experience for me. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun, but I didn't music direct that show. Uh, when I did Happy Days, the musical with Bravo Academy, uh, I really enjoyed that too. Uh, to be clear, I think Happy Days is one of the worst musicals I've ever done. Um, oh, really? What is that? It's, it's terrible. It's terribly written. The this the songs are weird. This is happy days like the fun's happy days. Yeah, yeah. Sunday, Monday, happy yeah. days. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean it's got the brand recognition and it has that song in it, which is a great song. Yeah. Um, but other than that song, I mean just it, it, they're just songs. They just there's a couple of good songs in there. There's one one song called Snap, which is a great song, but that's all I remember. The rest are just 
so bland. Um, however, um, Bravo Academy is a real pleasure to work with. I think I mentioned them before because Melissa yes. Benson runs an incredible program. The kids are so dedicated and so talented. So I had a great time just because of the program, not because of the show. Right. Um, although we did have a, a really, really fun time with that show. Um, let's see. A couple of shows that I did with the Children's Arts Theater School. I probably did. I think I said six, seven, maybe eight shows, but we did the drowsy chaperone and that just came together so well. Um, and we did you're in town, which you're was, in town, yes. which I saw you're in town when can stage did it like 15 years ago. And I remember thinking it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And when we did it with, with cats, uh, the director's name was Peter Busney. I don't know what he's up to now, but a uh, great director. And it, it just came together so well. It was one of the funniest shows that I've ever done. And the fact that it was performed by teenagers made it even more impressive. Hmm. Um, but then recently, um, my favorite shows are the ones I do with the Unsung Heroes productions. It's not really a variety show. What's the word I'm looking for? It's, these are kind of musical review shows. So Neil DeWin and uh, the creative team basically chooses a bunch of songs that we think would go well together. But there, there's not really a theme. It's just a mixture of pop, Broadway, rock um, with our own arrangements, we for sure come up to see at least one of them. They're the ones that are in North York, Vaughn. Oh, okay, yes, yes. But they're, they're a whole mix of, of different songs of different genres, and they are sort of in memory of Neil's mother who passed away. But they are to raise money for different charities. Mm. Um, typically, we've done um, for a leukemia charity. Excuse me, we've raised the money for that. And so the shows are always deep and meaningful. But um, the the community of people who work on the shows are, are lovely. And they are the ones who make it very meaningful for me. They, they treat me like family. They're very welcoming and very loving. Um, and I, I almost feel like it's a new family for me sometimes when I work on those shows. Yeah. Um, plus... It gives me the opportunity to be as artistic uh, as, as I want to be with a lot of the numbers. Mm. And how do you do that, Matt? I mean, give us an example. You are listening to Nikki Jameson Art Talks with guest artist, pianist and musical director Matthew Craig. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it and follow us on iTunes, Spotify or in your favorite podcast app. Let's get back to the interview. Sometimes it's obvious to me just listening to the song for the first time. Mm. But a lot of times I, I, uh, I, a lot of the times it's, it's somewhat improvisational, meaning that until I know exactly what I'm working with and I hear the singer singing, things don't occur to me. Yeah. And so, um, perhaps we'll be doing, uh, our, you know, we might be doing, it might be a famous song. It might be a famous song. Like I'm, I'm not that girl. Sorry. It took me a long time to remember that we did our okay. own sort of, we did our own sort of duet version of I'm not that girl based on a YouTube video. Um, and I had to get the two performers in and have them sing it. And as they're singing it, it occurs to me, oh, here's what we want to do here. Okay, so what are examples of those things? A lot of it has to do with dynamic and rhythmic phrasing. You should be, you know, I want you to get louder here and then have a pause here. Um, sometimes it's quite obvious. I mean, there, there's a general format that works well with ballads where the first verse is quite, it depends, of course, on the ballad, but I'm, I'm overgeneralizing here. The first verse is quite soft. The second verse is a little bit louder. You know what I mean? When you get into yes, the bridge and the, yes. and the big chorus, that's the biggest part. And then all of a sudden you pull right back for the final verse. Yeah. Um, it's a bit prescriptive. It tends to work in a lot of songs. But in, in some of the songs that I talked, I talked about um, some things are meant to be from Little Women. And I also did a similar thing in A Little Fall of Rain from Les Miserables. 
Um, something that can be very effective is simply pausing the music. When I did a little fall of rain, you know, this is the part at the very end and rain and rain will make the flowers, we'll make the flowers. Yeah. And then she dies and he sings the word grow. Uh, so when we did that, of course, there was a there was a decrescendo until it was almost silent. And before singing the word grow, I told the Marius character that he had to stop and exhale deeply and count to his head at least three full seconds before singing the last word. And that way you are sort of priming the audience. It gets quieter and sadder and sadder and sadder. And then there was a stop. And then there's three whole seconds for the audience to just take in absolute silence, which lets them really feel the emotion of the sadness before coming in and finishing the song. That's a technique I will use if it's a song that is very sad and has a moment to pause. Right. That's amazing. And I guess the audience, they feel the outcome of you doing that, right? Or we in the audience feel that. But that's fascinating hearing it described like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the way I know if it's working is if I feel it, I'm quite sure the audience feels it. Right. You're taking away the sound, so all they have to experience in that silence is their emotions. Um, it's, it's kind of like a, it's like a nice moment in time. Unfortunately, most musicals don't have songs that are conducive to that. Because they're too fast? There might not, there might not be an appropriate sort of ballady song that has a, a high point of sadness, right? Uh, I mean, when I did, I, I've done Little Shop of Horrors a couple of times, and you, you can do it to some extent in the song um, Somewhere That's Green. Nice. Uh, Somewhere That's Green is, is Audrey, the lead female. Um, you know, she's, she's singing about the life that she always dreamed about having, or she still dreams about having, you know, with white picket fences and just being able to cuddle up watching TV shows, um, as opposed to the nightmare she's living with an abusive boyfriend. Mm. Um, and so... That song ends quite softly, so you can do it to some extent there, even though Little Shop of Horrors is generally kind of just a fun pop musical. Got it. But when you do when you do a show like like Grease, for example, I don't mean to, to crap on Grease. <laughs> but I mean, uh, oh no, there was a, there was that big song. Um, there are worse things I could do. You can sort of do it to some extent in that song because that's quite emotional and sad. But there are some shows that just don't really have that big show stopping sad number, um, so it makes it tricky. That's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so I'm going to ask you this question. Is there anything that you find that influences your music or even your directing, if you want to, to bring that into it? Is there any, do you have any particular influences or do you just take it as you, as, as you find it and it's in the moment? Well, certainly my teaching style is influenced by Barbara Young, which I mentioned before. Right. For for better or for worse, because it absolutely does not resonate with everybody, and I'm aware of that. Um, the the people who love it absolutely love it. The people who don't like it quickly, I I like to think quickly do like it. Like I've met a lot of a lot of people in the unsung hero shows had a had a hard time with my style. I sh I'm I'm making it sound like I'm a, I'm not a good music director. I really am. But there were people had a hard time with my style because uh, I learned from who I thought was the best. Barbara Young was very, just very quick. And she actually, it was actually part of her teaching style 
to not let people get it 100%, but to keep moving forwards. And if you ever teach music theater, you will teach a song, and three weeks later, you have to reteach it anyway because they haven't gone over the harmonies. And so... In my particular style, I don't aim for 100% when I first teach it. That's I, that's fruitless. Yeah. I aim for 70%. And when we're at 70%, I move on to the next section, even though I know a lot of people don't have it. So some people are not used to that. And uh, they they believe that like they want to get the harmonies the first time. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, it does. Uh, and, and I recognize that I'm going to be reteaching this in a couple of weeks anyway. So sometimes I intentionally move faster than some people are, are perhaps prepared to do, um, in full knowledge that I'm going to record these harmonies at the end of rehearsal so you can practice them. And I'm going to be reteaching these in three weeks. So because I've done this so many times, I know with a hundred percent certainty that come showtime, they're going to know the harmonies with a hundred percent certainty. They were going to know them come showtime. Right. Um, so I'm able to do that with a lot of confidence. Not only do I tend to move fast, though, uh, I act very decisively. Some people absolutely love this because it means we move on and there's no drama. But but um, some people <laughs> I've had situations where it's, it's no fault of my own, but but perhaps singers aren't ready for it. Um, I'll give you an <laughs> example. So sometimes, you know, I made I made um, uh, I made a. <laughs> Again, this is going to sound bad until I explain it, but I made a performer cry. Oh, no. <laughs> during rehearsal, not because I was mean at all, okay? I okay, I know, I know. But when, I'm, when I'm teaching musical numbers, there's, you know, often there's a soloist in certain parts, and then there's the rest of the cast. Now, um, most of the time has to be sent working with the cast. I usually let the soloists figure out their own rendition of how they want to sing something, and then we have a separate rehearsal, and then I listen to that, and then we might we might change it. But a lot of times, um, when we're rehearsing with the forecast, I will teach them their harmonies, and I will want to hear it with a soloist. And so without really prepping the soloist that they might be singing, I will just go, uh, would you mind singing right now? And, you know, they might be uncomfortable, and they'll say, okay. Um, but I, I have had situations. I had one last time where we were singing all the harmonies, and there was a girl who, it was her first show. And, I, I you know, sometimes I'm not aware that people are less comfortable. and um, it was just kind of like, okay, I, I won't say her name, but I, I, it was kind of like, okay, are you ready? Can you sing the solo with us? And she said, okay. And then we just went. And, and I think that was a bit too much of a push and she wasn't ready for it. So she got a little bit overly emotional and we, we sort of comforted her and, and everything was fine. And she's a lovely person and a phenomenal performer. But, uh, I, I, I tend to move quite quickly like that. Mm. Um, so it's, it's something that I, I should be aware of sometimes. I do like the idea, though. It's very a very interesting idea of not actually aiming for 100%. Because so many, just talking from an artist's perspective, we tend to try and aim for 100% and get really stressed because we're never going to reach 100%. You know, so... Yeah, that was actually... That's actually something I was going to talk about later as well. Yes, okay, good. That's um, really... you want me to get into it now, I can do that no, as well. No, let's let's. I don't want to break your break your flow. Let's let's keep with the flow. That way, be it would be great. So, thank you for that about the influence on your music. That's that's really interesting. So, um, I only brought this next this next one I was going to ask you in because um, it's something that we've we've done together. We're going to get back to uh, your music. But you also teach, you've also taught people to dance. <laughs> and that's actually how we, how we, we met when you uh, taught uh, Modern Jive. 
hysterical, by Which the way. Hysterical, yes. <laughs> but look, hey, you taught my husband to dance. You taught Harry to dance. So, uh, you know yeah. what? Not so hysterical. So he credits me, yeah. So he credits me. <laughs> he always credits you. So um, I know we had a lot of fun doing doing Modern Jive. So, and, and, and Harry taught a few lessons to his and credit. And we taught a few lessons. We did that for four years. Come on, we did that for four years. No, no, no. Harry, no I was saying Harry taught a few lessons oh, to his credit. yes, he did. He Because he was a stand-in, so. Um, and he couldn't dance before you you taught him. So Harry you know, was a very strong lead. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was. Uh, although he didn't really enjoy. He never really enjoyed teaching. He'd said afterwards that he really didn't. He really didn't like it. But he would do it if he was called to do it. Yeah. yeah. In. So you know what? That sort of saved the day a lot of the times. But um, what did you enjoy, if anything? What did you? I hope you're going <laughs> to say. Hopefully, you enjoyed something. What yeah. did you enjoy about teaching modern jive? Was there anything you enjoyed? Was there anything I enjoyed? There, there were, but it wasn't so much the teaching aspect. Actually. It was the social aspect right it was, it was more the social aspect yes. yeah and, yes. and actually before i get into that i just want to talk about how i got involved in modern drive because uh, yes please do coming from a guy who like i mean i have a rhythm but i was never really a dancer in ballroom dancing never interested me in the slightest um I, I i dated a girl uh oh boy a long time ago now and she man did she have great rhythm and she always wanted to ballroom dance and i remember me like not being interested in it and that was actually a, a source of strife in our relationship uh, but I was teaching in London, England. One of my colleagues at the school, I mean, I didn't have many friends when I was there, uh, at least not at the beginning. And one of my colleagues suggested I go to, uh, it was a Ciroc class, actually. Yeah. Ciroc is basically the same as Modern Jive for the um, and, and for the listeners, Modern Jive is, is it's, I almost kind of describe it as, as ballroom dancing for dummies. Um, that's not far off actually which is I, which, I mean you know it's it's like anything for dummies like it, it's the sort of thing that is it's easy to get into it's it's far easier to get into than most other dance styles but of course there is almost no limit to how how expert how far your expertise can go when i did my first lesson which was at like a you know a gymnasium in a town hall or something i can't remember near clapham junction actually in london it was the sort of thing where you if you do one beginner lesson the way it's prescriptive and the way it's the way it's taught i i was actually able to do a few moves with relative competency after only one hour mm. um, whereas if you go to salsa you know it can take months before you feel like you can do anything yeah i know but but there's no end to it. I mean, when you watch when you watch Dancing with the Stars or, or or anything, when you watch dancers on any of those Got Talent shows, very frequently they're doing modern jive moves. Mm. So it, it can get extremely complicated. So he invited me to that dance class. I remember going with my friend Martin actually for the very first class. He lived in London at the time, and um, we actually found it quite enjoyable. And from there, I just kept going. Yeah, and I started inviting friends to it, and then. From there, uh, me and my friend Adam in London actually happened upon a modern jive class. Modern jive, it's basically Ciroc, but it was taught by two very energetic Australian guys. Yeah. One of them called Simon Borland and the other one called Seamus. I can't remember Seamus' last name. Yes, I know. And, yes. Yes. Shout to Simon. Their energy just made the class so much more fun. And then I started going really like two, maybe even sometimes three times a week to their classes. Yeah. Uh, and that's when it picked up. Um, I had a great time. Uh, I met one of my best friends, Emily, who you know. Yes. Uh, at a Ciroc class, and she started going to a modern drive with me all the time. Uh, and then I was, I mean, I was never a good dancer there, but I was relatively competent with the beginner moves. Um, 
And then I came back to Toronto after teaching in in, uh, in London. And I think there was one or two years where I didn't dance because I didn't know of any SROC classes. Yeah. And then Emily told me about this modern jive class that happened at the University of Toronto. So I brought my friend, my friend Ben to that. Ben danced with salsa. Um, and that was where we met you. Yes. And Andre. Yeah. And, yeah. and Stephanie, of course. I met Stephanie that night, too. Yes. Yes. And it's really funny, just to, just to uh, segue into that, because as you're telling the, the, the story, because we still know Simon and, and, and Seamus. and. Yep. Um, yeah, and uh, you came into uh, Andre's class where we were at, and I think Stephanie was at, and yes, yeah. yeah. So it's a small world when it comes to many things, but especially a small world when it comes to uh, dance, and even smaller because so few people know of modern jive in Toronto, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, continue, continue. Okay, anyway, so, yeah. I, so for the listeners, I met uh, – I met Nikki at this thing. We danced a couple times and then I put my email on the email list. And like two days later, she's like, Matt, I want to make my own. Oh, actually, before I say that, when we were at the class, we were both cheap. You know, Nikki has a very clear English accent. And I said, oh, I learned how to do modern jive in England with this, <laughs> with this company called Jive Nation UK. And she's like, yeah, that's where I learned how to do it. And, and we were both taught by Simon. Yeah. And yeah. then like two days later, she sends me this email she, and it was the tone of the email was like, I don't want to freak you out, but do you want to teach a, a giant nation Toronto class? I want to start. <laughs> I was like, I was, I was like, that sounds like a lot of fun to be honest. Yeah. And, and it was. Yes. You know, Simon actually came to Toronto and uh, he trained me a little bit to be a teacher. We practiced and we started up our class. Yes, we did. Um, okay, so your question was, um, what do I like about what it? What did you like about it? Yeah. Um, let's see what I wrote here. I want to make sure. Oh, yeah, I talked about. Oh, yeah. So this is the funny thing that I wrote when answering this question. So there were there were certainly things I didn't like about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Simon he loved to dance like he lived for it every minute every day yeah. okay? uh, when he taught a class so there would always be like an hour class and then a half an hour intermediate class and then there would be freestyle which basically means it's a dance club and everyone dances with each other and Simon would be on the dance floor for you know three hours straight he he lived dancing I do not <laughs> live dancing I am very extroverted. I love doing social things. I love meeting new people. Um, but as, as as Nikki can attest, I found it so tiring teaching class. Yes. Uh, when the classes ended at, uh, El, what was it, El Rancho? What was it called? Yes. Yeah, El oh, Rancho. Okay. I, I would literally run away and go to the bathroom uh, or, or go to the bar and just sit there for 20 minutes, exhausted. And Nikki would be like, Matt, you have to dance with the students. And I'd be like, all right. I'm, uh, here we go. Here we go. Oh my god, that's so funny because it's true. It's like I kind of <laughs> understood. I thought, but they want to. They all want to dance with the teacher because they yeah. all want to dance with this with the teacher who had just taught them for the last yeah, like, yeah. forty five minutes an hour. And I, I came <laughs> back and I did dance with all yeah, of them. Yeah, I know. I, mean, I know. I always felt you. <laughs> The other thing about that is that, I mean, like, certainly I was a competent dancer and I'm, you know, I'm very articulate with a microphone. So that made me an effective teacher, I think. But as an actual practicing dancer, I was never anything close to, um, you know, performance or anything, anything close to what Simon did. And even at my very best, if I went to a modern jive class in London, I would be kind of right in the middle with the intermediate people. Mm hmm. Uh, and, and there were some times when I would do an intermediate class and I would not be able to pick up the moves at the pace they were going. Um, 
So I was I was competent, but I was no by no means an excellent dancer. And there was never a point when I was dancing modern jive where my brain wasn't going, what moves am I going to do next? <laughs> it, it never quite felt as free flowing as I wanted it to. But that's not to say I didn't have a great time doing it. Yeah. And you um, know. And you know what, Matt? Sometimes yeah. I, you know, you can. There, there. I think there are people who are fantastic, wonderful dancers in the performance uh, from a performance perspective, but they can't teach, right? They can't. They don't have the patience or the or the I don't know aptitude even to teach. Sometimes you get. Sometimes you get. Um, you get it in one package. Like Simon knew how to teach, but he's he was also very good at perf- performance. But he all I he, I always felt, especially when doing classes with him, that he was more concerned that people were having a good time and feeling that they were accomplishing something as opposed to, as opposed to showing off his moves. And I always felt the same with you. You were taught by 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 him, of course. That that kind of ethos is what what carried through the class. In that it wasn't so much about. Um, being a brilliant dancer. In fact, probably some of the people that you taught would become brilliant dancers in and off their their own if they really wanted to. But you know, for the majority of people, they wanted to just to, to feel you know to feel that they'd accomplished something and to see that how easy it was to um, to pick up these steps and actually feel and actually dance when they thought, oh, you know, I can't dance because many people came to our classes and said, I can't dance. And then after a few lessons, they're actually doing these things. And they always came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I love. I loved the class. I loved Matt. I loved you both teaching together. And they they went away with the feeling of accomplishment and not, wow, look at all those wonderful dancers and I'm never going to be able to do that. You know what I mean? So I always felt that that was that was what we were about really because anyone can yeah. go off anywhere and go and do performance dancing and it wasn't really so much about that so yeah yeah and I, listen, I want to give you just reminded me i want to give credit where it's due as well um the reason i had a good time doing it and the reason i wanted to keep it up is because you were such an excellent boss slash partner oh thank you <laughs> i mean nikki like you can, i don't think i don't think i could work for a better boss i mean oh, you are the, you are yeah, the nicest you. you are the most accommodating uh, all you ever think about is how to make people happy. Um, oh you get word. excited when I get excited about learning new moves. Um, yeah, really, I like there, there. There is no better person to work with. Oh my gosh, that's that's fantastic, man! Thank you so much. Yeah. And, and, you. and and not just you, of course. Harry was phenomenal to work with, and Stephanie and was Stephanie, always just incredible oh, to work with. I think we were an incredible. I'm not, and I'm you know I say this without. Um, you know, I think that we were just such a great and, and happy team and, yeah. uh, and and so talented, like the um, the consistency and we were always there for the students and it was always the students happiness that was that was important. And I just think uh, I had the most fun time, I have to say, doing, do, you know, during those um, doing those classes, and uh, I just was so happy that you were teaching, that Harry could teach and, you know any subs that we had i think i think it just made it and it was just a fun night <laughs> and i hope our students if they ever listen to this will uh will will agree with that that they had a that they had a fun time yeah anyway, it was yeah. a good time yeah yeah so that's great thank you for those 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 words that really means sure. a lot to me thank you yeah. so matt let's let's move on to so what inspires you to do what you do and, and how do you stay motivated? Do you, do you ever feel not motivated and how do you keep, how do you keep on doing what you're doing? Yeah, well, that's, that's a big okay, question, right? 
Yeah, it's a big question. Okay, so how do I stay motivated and do I ever feel not motivated? Uh, yes, I absolutely do. But let's answer the first one first. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think we're all, you know, humanity in general, we're at our best when we're in our, our flow state, when we're doing something that we really love. Yes. Um, but it's just challenging enough to keep us on our toes. Um, so this is why I love getting called in last minute for gigs. I like nothing more than Matt, uh, my piano player just got really sick and I have a concert tonight. Can you come in and play for me? I like nothing more than that. Cause I know that I'm going to show up and I'm gonna have to sight read stuff for the first time for this concert. Um, and that, that is really exciting for me because I know that I can sight read stuff for the first time but I know it's going to be some work and I'm going to be really on my toes. Um, so I think when you're doing something that you are good at, but it is challenging you and I, whenever I can be most helpful to other people, that's the position that I try and put myself in. Um, so sometimes it means I will take just about any gig, even if the payment is bad. Um, I will not do a music directing for a music theater show if the payment is bad, because that is an extended process over a few months. But for example, I've taken um, I've taken some gigs on. Oh, so I have a Kijiji ad, okay? Yeah, I have a Kijiji ad. It just says my name is Matt. I play piano. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I do. And I can, I mean, it, in so many words, it says I can play anything you need. Let me know what you need, and we'll talk. And so I've gotten I've gotten all manner of things from this. One of the most interesting is I got contacted by um, by my friend Corey, uh, who runs a rock band. And because of that post, I joined a rock band and played with them for about three years. I don't really play with them anymore, um, but it was because of that Kijiji post. Wow. I've been singers. I've been called. I've done wedding gigs. I just did an like an engagement party reception last month. I just got a call last week, and I'm working with a girl who is getting married, and she wants to sing a medley of songs for her future husband. And she just, uh, and it sounded like a great gig. And, you know, the, the, I, I quoted her how much I would charge. And she's like, I, I couldn't possibly pay that much. Here's how much I could pay. And it's, and it's definitely a cut and pay, but it sounded like fun. Mm-hmm. We, we, we basically made a medley of uh, verse and a course of five songs. We're going to throw them together. Um, so that's, that's pretty fun for me. Um, let's see. So that's how I stay motivated. What was the other one? Oh, am I ever not motivated? Mm, yeah, yeah, I might as well talk about this. Yeah, I, I have a very difficult time staying motivated to practice. Oh, really? Like everybody, yeah. Yes. There's, there's a certain sort of, I don't know if it's a plateau that I've reached, but it's a certain limit that I have where I, I no longer have the patience to practice necessarily the way I would like to. Um, and this has showed up in a couple ways. So I started taking jazz piano. I've always wanted to play jazz. I think jazz is the, the coolest thing you can do. Some types of jazz, some types of jazz I can't stand, but like, like any great American songbook Gershwin type stuff. Um, I would love to be able to just sit at a piano and just solo and, you know, over the rainbow, whatever it is. Uh, and I started taking jazz lessons with a, a teacher named David story, who, uh, if anyone's listening, what a phenomenal guy. What a phenomenal teacher. Um, I loved every minute of the jazz lessons, but I eventually had to stop because I was simply not practicing. I just couldn't pull myself into practice. Um, <laughs> and eventually I was like, it's a little bit pointless for me to continue these lessons. Um, and 
sometimes there are piano pieces that I really love. Um, there are classical piano pieces that I love that I've always wanted to play, but I don't really have venues to perform. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I'm very extroverted and performance is about, is, it's about a social thing for me. It's about bringing people together. Um, and classical music has very little place in something like that. Uh, the best times when I play piano is when I'm at a party and we're all sitting at a piano drinking, singing rock songs. That's the greatest time I have playing piano. I want to hear classical music those times. Mm-hmm. Pieces that I have a list of pieces that I want to play and record. It's not all classical. Some of them are movie themes. Some of them are movie things that I have written arrangements for. Um, yeah. But in order to record them, I need to practice them. And I, I sometimes don't even know why I am recording them because I, I post them on my YouTube channel, but you know, they get 50 hits or something for in ever. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They might get a hundred views over six months. Like nobody's really watching them every once in a while. I'll record something on the piano and post it to you um, to Facebook. Just so my friends know that I'm still alive and playing piano. But, but sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. And, and to give you guys an example, um, so the other day, um, the movie trailer to Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker came out. And in the trailer, they use a very partic- a particularly rousing rendition of Princess Leia's theme um, right. from the original Star Wars movies. And it's just, if you haven't seen the trailer, the music is just epic. It's just an epic 20 seconds of music. Um, and so uh, I sat down on my piano and I wrote an arrangement of it out in about 30 minutes because it's very straightforward and, uh, and it was very simple to play. And so I recorded it and I posted it on Facebook and YouTube. Um, and that one actually got a few hundred hits, which is, which is a lot for me. Mm. And there was other music I always really loved. Hans Zimmer is, a, you know, sort of a, a legendary movie theme composer right now. Um, and I was putting together a, together a medley of Hans Zimmer, and it ended up being way too long. So I ended up just doing a couple of songs from Inception, if you've seen the movie Inception. Yes, yes. One of them is called uh, Dream is Collapsing, which is – I mean, it's just – unspeakably epic this music right. and one of them is called time which is the the epic music that the entire movie ends with it's got this very simple sort of two bar theme or four eight bar theme and it just builds and builds with more instrumentation and more dynamics and and i wrote this arrangement it took me a while to write the arrangement yeah. and i decided before i recorded it that it's it wasn't even that hard to play uh, i've written things that are very hard to play that one wasn't so hard to play but i decided that i wanted to record it and I decided that I wanted to record it from memory. Oh my uh, gosh! How did you do that? <laughs> and we talked about how playing things at seventy percent is really—I can play, I can sight read anything almost at seventy percent, including my own music. But to get seventy percent up to up to ninety percent is a lot of work, and to get from ninety percent to a hundred percent is virtually impossible in some cases for me. And that Inception piece, um, I just it, it wasn't that hard to play. And I decided that I was going to record it from memory without making any mistakes. Um, and it took me hours, hours and hours, because without the sheet music in front of me, I would inevitably forget a note here and there, and I'd have to stop and re-record. Oh, wow. I probably recorded it 20 times on my phone over like four hours in order to get a decent recording. And I finally got that one recording and then I posted it to my YouTube channel. And, you know, it's gotten like 15 hits in the past, like, oh, month. That, you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> All that effort. So, 
that's where I have difficulty. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I have an arrangement of the Superman movie theme. I want to record it on my new piano. I can't be bothered. I've written an arrangement of the Back to the Future theme. It's an awesome arrangement, oh my word. but it's difficult to play, and I can't be bothered. Yeah. I've, written an, I've written an arrangement of the suite from Indiana Jones, which is just it, like incredible theme music. It, and it, if I do say so myself, it's an amazing piano arrangement. I just can't be bothered. Uh-huh. So I have all these things that I've written, and I've just never bothered to record. Wow. That's interesting. That's interesting. I feel for you. I'll go and look at those ones then. <laughs> but I know, I know what you mean there. I'm, a, you know, putting all that effort and all that, that's dedication to do all those, that number of recordings. And then, you know, just to get that one recording, I'm not even sure I could even stick to yeah. that dedication, to be honest. I yeah. mean, so, there, there's a recording of me playing flight of the bumblebee, which I posted to Facebook, which is a pretty good recording, but, um, but I, it, it's listen it, as as is common knowledge it's a very difficult piece to play and it's a piece that is so um persistently fast for the entire minute and 20 seconds or wh- however long it is it's all muscle memory and my brain doesn't even know what's happening and just my hands are moving on autopilot um, and a piece like that i am not really good enough to play that piece and a piece like that it for me is all but impossible to play without making any mistakes. And I did a similar thing as with Inception. That piece was easier to memorize because it's only about a minute and 20 seconds. Um, So memorizing wasn't the issue. But as with Inception, I probably recorded about 30 times. And the recording that I finally had to settle on was far from perfect. And there were a couple of mistakes in it. But at some point, I just had to go, that's as good as I'm going to get. Unless I want to keep recording this for the next week and go crazy about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, though. That's really fascinating. I mean, who who knew? And it's funny when people post up these things and when you're posting your, your videos, nobody knows of all the, the hours of work that goes into to these, right? And uh, yeah. it's just, you know, I don't even so know. I, yeah. I, I figure if that's the trouble that I have doing it, when I see other YouTube, I mean, there are YouTubers who do similar things they write their own arrangements of movie themes and they record them and they get some of them get hundreds of thousands of hits. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I see them playing these flawlessly in my mind, I go, I wonder how many takes it took. Oh gosh, probably. Well, you know, it must be a lot of takes. It probably is, but I can tell just, you know, from listening to them that they're clearly professional piano players. Um, I mean, they have hundreds of thousands of hits, so they are undoubtedly more skilled than I am. So it's probably a little bit easier for them. But I've seen some professionals, some um, some orchestral pieces that I've looked at on YouTube and so on, and you know, so few hits. And thinking, I'm thinking, why aren't there more hits on on this? You know, you know, because it's fantastic, you know, fantastic music that I like. So you know, who right. knows? Well, yeah, you'll see those Facebook posts, which is like you know, some guy playing, you know, uh, you know, some some guy playing something on a piano in a subway or something. Mm-hmm. And I listen to it, and yeah, it's good. Is it better than me? No. no. <laughs> I play better things? Absolutely. Yeah. All the time. Um, and this person, for whatever reason, will have like 15 million hits. Yeah. Right? I always think fishy there. <laughs> and then I get my and then I get my 30 hits for whatever on YouTube. Yeah. Um, because I'm not I'm not jealous or anything, but I, mm. I don't have the, I don't have the answers, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Anyway, that is that's. I think that's really, uh, really insightful, in- interesting. I never even thought of that. And, uh, but I hope you keep, I hope you keep on playing and 
finding motivation despite the YouTube whatever it is you know <laughs> so i always say we we'd, we'd love to hear you play again but i know you know that's up to you if you ever do anything the nikki is referring to there the classical music she's referring to um a recital that i did with uh with an, another performer oh man seven years ago something like seven years ago where we, we both did 45 minutes each in kind of a duo yeah at the university of toronto yeah um, that but one I don't remember that one being so bad because in order for me to put together 45 minutes of classical music, I mean, I played most of the classical repertoire out there. Mm. So all the pieces I played, I was already pretty good at playing and they just needed some touching up. Yeah. But it's these difficult ones that you, that, uh, you know, we haven't heard you play live, but they're harder, right? Because they're hard pieces. So, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the, the I spoke about Flight of the Bumblebee there. <laughs> Mm. I made that recording, but five minutes later, I would not have been able to play it that well. That's, <laughs> oh, that's how right. lucky that one recording was. Yeah, so luck of the draw. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. So do you want to talk about your progression of pianos? Because I know you when you got I know you got your baby grand. Is it a baby yeah. grand? You got your baby grand some time ago. Did you have a uh, did you have other ones before then or or no, I seem to think you had a progression of pianos. <laughs> I don't know why I got that thought from. No, I think that's accurate. Okay, okay good. Yeah, okay. so I, I've lived in my current place for something like eight or nine years. I can't remember. Wow, that long. Which means my bird is eight or nine years old, by the way. Yes, your bird, Coco, right? Coco, that's right. Okay. He's in the other room where he would have been shrieking. Yes. Oh, yeah. He'll be silent until he hears me in a conversation, and then he wants to be a part of it. Oh! Uh, so listen to everybody he, uh, Matt has it what kind of bird is it again it, it is a green cheek conure they're very playful but they can be very loud yeah he has this very loud bird called Coco and yeah. uh, who always wants to be in <laughs> always wants to be in conversations I didn't know that it, and it's a he isn't it is it he or she uh, we don't actually know with okay. conures it's very difficult to tell so unless you get some genetic testing you just pick one and go okay but anyway always wants to be part of the uh, the um the, the conversation so that's who we're referring to yeah. okay yeah so your progression of pianos matt actually funny story about that before i get to the pianos mm -hmm. um uh somebody came in so, so I, i've had some like leakage through my balcony door for ever since I moved in here. And so somebody, right. came, in, somebody came in to sort of like bash open the, the walls a little bit to, to look at it and try and understand where it was coming from. And the balcony door is right next to the birdcage. And uh, I knew he was coming in on Monday morning where they were coming in and I left the birdcage open. I like, I just forgot to close it in the morning. Sometimes it's open all the time. Wow. And my neighbor, Terry told me that he made a run for it when they came in. No, like, he, he apparently she was under the impression that he tried to fly out of my unit, which is weird. I don't think he would have done that. He was probably just trying to fly on somebody's shoulder. But when a conure comes flying right at your face, it can be very startling. Yeah. Um, I have friends who just shriek out of fear when it happens. Yeah. Uh, I have friends who will not even come to my unit unless the cage is closed. And, and I'm used to it because I've had it my whole life. But even some days if I come home from work and I open the door and he's flying right at my face, even I get startled. Yeah. I know he'll land on my shoulder because he always does. But um, <laughs> anyway, he tried to make a run for it. And I asked Terry what happened. She said one of them was able to get Coco on his finger and put him back in the cage, which was oh great. My God, that's great. A lot of people are too afraid to even do that. Anyway, uh, getting on to the pianos. Yes. <laughs> um, so when I first moved in, I took my parents who live a couple blocks away had two upright pianos. Uh, in the basement, they kind of had an older rickety one, and I took that with me, which was a terrible piano, but, you know, it was something to play on. 
And then a number of years ago, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, um, we were at an auction house nearby and they were selling an upright piano and I wasn't planning on buying it, but I went and I played on it and it actually played as though it was brand new. And it was clearly a huge improvement over my current one. Uh, this was called a, a Kemble, I think. It was a very small studio upright piano. Uh, I can't remember what I paid for it, 1500 or something, but it, it looked and played like a brand new piano. And, uh, and I moved that in. And I sold my other piano to a woman on Kijiji for 400 bucks, which is more than I thought I would get for it. <laughs> um, and then that Kemble, which was a, kind of a nice, sleek, small black piano, stayed at my place. And I played on that for a few years. And I don't remember when it was, but I, I just decided two, two and a half years ago that it was time for me to get a grand piano. And in that process, I did months and months of research. And I had kind of decided that I wanted a Yamaha piano. It didn't have to be Yamaha, but there were some models that I liked. Um, and the so I, I, I really knew how much the different models should be priced based on all my Kijiji searching and all the, the piano shops that I went to. Um, and I ended up, uh, I actually ended up getting not the piano I really wanted. The piano I really wanted is called a C2, but mm -hmm. you just don't, you just don't see them on sale. I mean, I've seen one or two on sale in the past two years. I still look just for fun. Right. They're just never on sale and, and they're going to be pretty pricey. What I do see on sale is a C3, which is also an incredible piano, but it's quite big for my unit. And I thought it was just going to be too big and too loud. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have had to pay a lot more for it than my current one. My current model is called the GC1, which is, it's an entry-level piano. I think you can get them new for about $20,000. They're not great, but they are certainly far better than any upright. Right. And when I, when I got this particular one, it was, it, was, it was quite funny, actually. It was advertised on Kijiji without a price. Mm. and without the model so i emailed them and i said what's the model how old is it what's the um what's the uh the serial number and how much do you want for it so she told me the model it was a gc1 it was about i think it's about 15 years old now um and she said she wanted eighteen thousand for it which is about what she paid for it and um <laughs> based on my research like gc1s all, all the ones that i've seen have been like posted on a for like twelve thousand or something right so I emailed her back and I said, you know, it's a decent piano, but I, I, I'm not interested in that price. Just to let you know that the price you're asking for is far more than even better pianos are sold for on Kijiji. And that was kind of the end of it. And then I think a few days later, she messaged me again. She said, I'm willing to negotiate on the price if you want to see the pianos. I said, fine. Um, we didn't say how much we'd negotiate, but I, I went and took a look at the piano. And let me tell you. This was the worst sounding piano I have <laughs> ever heard in my life. Not because it was in bad. It was clearly in good shape. Yeah. Because they bought it 12 years ago and nobody played it and it was never tuned once. Oh, my word. It was a piece of furniture. Wow. And it sounded like it had never been, which is arguably one of the worst things you can do for a piano. Yeah. It. I had no, it, it just sounded awful. It was the, it was the most awful sounding piano I had ever heard. So there was no way for me to even gauge what the potential of this piano was. Right. Okay. Um, I think, um, I think, I, I think at that time we still hadn't talked about price, but I said, you know, I need my, uh, I need, I need, like, I need to call in a technician to ask him about this. Cause I, I have no idea. So I, I have a friend who's a technician and, um, 
he came by like a week later to take a look at it with me. Played around with a couple of tools and stuff to touch the tensions. And, you know, he kind of motioned. He's like, Matt, let's go chat outside about this. Right. Yeah. So like we have to have a private conversation. So Octavian and I go outside and he says, he goes, listen, he goes, yeah, it's way out of tune. But he said, the piano is actually in very good shape. He said, this is a good piano. It, it, of course, needs a tuning. He said, the tension in the strings is not good. So it might need pin replacement soon. But he said, this is a good piano. He said, if you can get it for 8000 that would be really good. He said, 9000 be good. He said, don't spend more than 10000 though. It's not worth more than that. So, so we leave and I email her and I say, I say listen, uh, I'll give you 8000 for it. And she goes... Um, she was just like, no, we don't, we don't want to go lower than 12500 So I just, I just kind of said, forget it. But uh, and that was the end of it. But about, about two weeks later, um, I, got, I get a message from her. She's like, Matt, uh, we're willing to go down lower. And so it, she asked me if I would, I would uh, take it for 10000 right? Which was like the upper limit of what my, my technician told me to take it for. Uh-huh. Um, and it turns out that they were moving. Mm-hmm. They were moving in like a week from when I got that text mm-hmm. and they did not want to take that piano with them. And yeah. it turns out that they had an offer, I think for 12,000, but it was from somebody who could not move the piano before they had to move. Ah, and they had to sell. And I, I said, listen, I don't want to pay 10,000. I just won't. But if, if you'll take 9,000 for it, then it's a deal. And I think they, they just had to do it. And yeah. so she said, yeah, We'll take 9,000. And that was that. And so I have my piano. Um, and it actually is, is quite a good piano. But uh, what my technician friend told me that the pins might need replacing is absolutely true. I have had to, I've had it tuned a number of times and it sounds beautiful when it's tuned. And within a few weeks, it goes out of tune again. And so we need to get the tunes replaced, uh, the pins replaced. And that's going to happen quite soon. Okay. Yeah. Interesting story, though, how you uh, how you acquired it. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Yeah. OK, so um, I'm going to we talked a bit about your music and impacting your your life and the life of others. And I wanted to ask I wanted to go through some of these other ones. So if we've still got time, I'll come back to to those ones. And I also know you've talked about your we've talked about your entrepreneurial flair and how you get your gigs, but and finding balance. But what advice would you give aspiring musicians if they're trying to find gigs and, you know, do more um, of their creative playing and so on? Right. Um, sometimes, sometimes people ask me, like, how do you have the time for all this? And the answer is really easy. I'm not married and I don't have kids. <laughs> it's, it's literally as simple as that. Yeah. I can wake up, go to the gym, have lunch, tutor some kids, watch a movie, go to choir rehearsal, have dinner all in one day. Yeah. Um, and I'm still bored the next day. So, um, in, in terms of bored and threshold, though, Matt. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. I really do. I mean, it's 10:30 in the morning right now, and I've already done so much. Anyway, um, okay. So, to try and find gigs. Well, so this is I'm arguably not the right person to ask this. This is a side job for me. Yeah. And and I tend to get contacted at about the frequency that I'm comfortable doing gigs. You know what I mean? Yes. If I had more calls to do more, I'd probably have to start turning them down. Okay, it's also a little bit easier for me, given that I play piano, which is one of the most um, versatile instruments. So I have gotten quite a few gigs just for my Kijiji ad. Not a ton, but like I'll get, you know, I might get a couple of emails a month about it. But that's because I play piano and I can say read. I can basically play just about any style of music that people need. So um, it's easy for me to accept gigs. But aside from that, most of what I have is because I know musicians. 
I'm, I'm good at what I do and I know other musicians. Um, but if you were, let's say, like a, a singer trying to find gigs, it, that might be a lot harder for you. I really couldn't say. Well, still, that's very useful, though, because, I mean, be good at being good at what you do, you know, knowing, um, being able to, you know, be versatile. You have to play a versatile instrument and uh, basically going and, and uh, making sure you make connections and know people. Right. That's been your approach anyway, which might not work for everybody. But. You know, people can take what they take what they will from from that, right? And see what whatever applies to them. I just thought that it's always useful to to um, if people ask, oh, well, how do I do do that? And just just hear from you what you said, what you would say about that. Okay, do you do you ever have performance anxiety? Let's talk about that. <laughs> That's an interesting one. And my other question was, well, my follow-on was, what are your two biggest challenges, and how do you meet them? And one of them I wondered was whether you ever have performance anxiety before a performance or preparing that kind of thing. So right, yeah. right. Well, let me ask you, Nikki, did you ever have performance anxiety for like a dance class? It, it's really interesting. Because I always did before every class, I'd have these butterflies in my stomach, right? Even though I knew that we'd practice the moves or we would practice the move, you never really knew how a class would go. And after, but after a while, it was like, okay, it's going to be what it's going to be. Um, if we make a mistake, and of course, I always had you to partner with, so I wasn't sort of teaching by myself. And um, I would say I had more of it in the earlier days of um, doing the you just get into a rhythm and you know how it's going to go and you know how you can recover but I didn't have performance anxiety as oh my god you know I'm gonna mess this up kind of uh, thing as as much or maybe I did and I just put it in the background I probably did but I learned how to I learned how to sort of put it aside because we were there for the, we were there to to give something to the to people who were to receive something from us so it had to be secondary that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I think, isn't that the definition of courage for most people? It's not that you're not afraid. It's that you're able to perform despite your fears. Exactly. Yeah. I think so. And, and just, just to continue that, that thought, continue my own thought, I, now, I remember now people would come up to say, oh, I don't know how you do that. How do you remember all those moves? And how do you do all that? I'd be terrified of people. And I thought, well, you just do it. Once you're into it, once you're into what you're doing, you just you just go with it. And, you know, if you make a mistake or whatever, it's not the end of the world or you just learn to, to recover. Because there were plenty of times we made mistakes um, in teaching some of the uh, moves and things, but it was never as big a deal in uh, in reality as it was, as it might have been in my mind. <laughs> um, yeah, you bring up an interesting point. Um, uh, the point about uh, it was, or at least it reminded me of about how it doesn't matter if we make mistakes. So the, the simple answer to the question is usually I don't have performance anxiety. Um, there are some situations that I do. This is probably a carryover from when I used to do exams with the Royal Conservatory. But if I'm ever performing a classical solo, a classical piano piece solo in front of other musicians, that is about the only time that I get performance anxiety. So like when I played that concert, um, the recital with Ben those years ago that we talked about. Yeah, I got, I was certainly nervous for the first few pieces until I got into it. So, so I certainly do. Um, one of the ways that I mitigate performance anxiety is that I don't have an expectation that I'm going to play perfectly. Beyond that, I do have an expectation that every time I perform, especially in music theater, when I do a show, I have an expectation that I'm probably going to hit two or three real stinker bad notes at really obvious times during a music theater performance. I expect it, and when it happens, I can just kind of laugh it off and go, yep, I knew that was going to happen. Right. 
the worst anxiety is when you're worried about playing perfectly because then that sticks with you the entire performance. Now that I don't have that expectation of myself, uh, everything's quite easy going. Now, I've also been playing in music theater so often that it, I just don't get nervous anymore for those types of performances. The last show that I did for the Unsung Heroes Project was the first time the band was going to be on stage. So I was in full view of everyone conducting and playing piano. And there was a moment when I was told that I thought it was a great idea. But <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind is I tend to be very fidgety. And I was like, I'll be, have to be careful not to fidget. But the second thing came to my mind is I wasn't sure if I would be nervous being on stage, because then I would be in view of everybody. And the answer very quickly became no, not at all. I was not nervous at all. Um, perhaps because the attention is not on me. The attention is just on the singers, the performers. Although watching the video, I'm in plain view on the risers for the entire time. No, I don't get nervous for that. Um, okay. I just did one gig where I wasn't, I wouldn't say I wasn't nervous. I had maybe a slight, like 1% anxiety. I got called in. This was a very interesting gig, actually. I got called in by a piano player who was playing for the final recital of ballet dancers at York University. It's kind of the, the highest class of, of certificate you can get in ballet in the world of ballet. Mm. Um, and he, I think he broke his left arm or it was in a cast anyway. And so I was there to play the left-hand parts of the piano pieces. Oh, right. Which is, which is a great gig, let me tell you. Playing just one hand of a piano piece. I was going <laughs> to say. How'd you it was that? arguably the easiest gig. I just had to sight-read some pieces. It was very straightforward. However, because it was for ballet dancers, there are, you have to be very in tune with how the ballet dancer is dancing. Um, there are some places where you'll have to slow down the music because their choreography requires them to do it slower. And some places where their choreography requires it to do it faster. So it's not as simple as just reading through music for a singer. There was a lot of adaptation in the tempos that we had to do. And I was in a position where I had to watch the timing and conducting of the, the man sitting next to me on the bench playing the right hand. And I had to read the music in front of me. And I had to be aware of the dancer at the same time. The knowledge that I had to try and pay attention to all those three things and the knowledge that my playing could literally make or break it for this dancer in their big recital made me a little bit nervous, but not really. Like, I felt it a tiny bit, but that was it. That being said, um, I had a conversation recently with my friend Mark, who knows more about music theater than me, certainly, and also music directs and plays piano. He was telling me that Barbara Streisand, ar arguably the you know most famous singer of our generation, um, is has famous performance anxiety and does not tour because of that. Oh, really? And only does the rare tours, and she's the best of the best. And I was actually looking up uh, on Wikipedia once. I can't remember why, but I was looking up Vladimir Horowitz, who was one of the most famous concert pianists of all time. I think he died around 20 years ago, but certainly in the 1900s, he was, he was arguably the most famous pianist. And apparently his um, stage fright was so bad that he had to be physically pushed out on stage by his wife many times. Wow. So it hits the best of the best as well. Thank you for sharing that. So do you have any other, um, well, that isn't really a big, big challenge then for you. Do you have um, challenges that uh, you think that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about this question. I had a hard time answering it um, mm. because music for me is a hobby. Um, it's not, it's not really a profession. Yeah. Um, I don't. I'm in a position where I can take exactly what I want to take in order to be comfortable with it. So if, if there was a gig that I'm asked to do and, and I can tell that it's going to be a pain or that it's going to actually require practicing, I just won't do it. 
For example, if, if, if I was asked to play for those ballet dancers, the music that, that these piano players were playing was quite difficult. So I wouldn't take on that gig because that would require me to, I'm sure I would get paid okay, but it would require significant amounts of practice, which I wouldn't want to do. Um, and of course, I talked about how I find it difficult to motivate myself to learn difficult pieces. Um, another thing that strikes me is I've never written any music. Would you like to? I'm not sure. I've written piano arrangements of other music, but I've never written a song. I've never really had. I've never really had the motivation to write a song. Mm. Which is strange because my brother Jeremy writes songs all the time. He used to be the front man for a band, and uh, and he was a, he's a great songwriter. Um, but it's it's just never hit me. Never had the motivation for it. Interesting. Well, I guess you don't you don't have to write songs, right? I mean, you can rearrange music and do that. So you don't you obviously don't yeah. have to. So No, I certainly don't have to. I just it always struck me as unusual that I've never even cared to try. Yeah. Yeah. Well you're doing so much else though that it's like, oh, one of those things, maybe you will, maybe maybe you won't. But if you don't really feel like it, it doesn't really matter, right? So yeah. Okay, so where can people um, find out a little bit? I know you mentioned your YouTube channel. Do you do you have any other place? And I'll actually link to your YouTube channel in the show notes. There's only a handful of videos on the YouTube channel, as you will see. Um, yeah, still. To, uh, yeah, there's, my YouTube channel is Matthew Craig, but there's probably hundreds of more popular Matthew Craigs on YouTube, so you might not even be able to find it from the search. Oh, really? Um, Make sure you send me the link, though. You, I, if you typed Matthew Craig plays Inception. Okay. Or something, that. then that might be specific enough to find it. Mm -hmm. um, I have a website as well, which is called mattcraig.org, M-A-T-T-C-R-A-I-G.org, which was amazing to me that that URL was actually available when I made it. You were so lucky, yes. Like, mattcraig.com was taken, mattcraig.net was taken, but .org was there, so I took it. Excellent. And there's some information about my teaching on there, and, a little, and there's some videos of me playing, like some links to the YouTube videos, but mostly I made the website because. Um, uh, as a physics teacher and a programmer, I programmed a lot of my own simulations that I use in my teaching, like educational simulations for, for physics and science concepts. For example, I have a simulation of an animal cell, and you can click on the different parts, and it will tell you what they do. Um, and I presented these at a couple of conferences for science teachers in Ontario a couple of years ago, and I needed a good way of distributing to other people. So I built this website, and you can just kind of click and download them. Um, but on that website, you can also read about the music that I do and watch some videos there. Fantastic. Thank you. So the next, uh, um, what's your vision for yourself and uh, your art, your music? What do you want to see happen there? Or do you, are you just happy with it as it is right now? Or Yes, I'm happy with it as, as it is right now. Uh, I want to keep playing parties. I want to keep doing interesting gigs. I wouldn't mind getting involved in larger scale things as well like larger, uh, like less community productions and more semi-professional. It would be really fun for me to be a rehearsal pianist for, you know, a Mervish show, for example. But I have, I have none such connections whatsoever. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and I, don't, I really don't care to go out of my way to find them. Yeah. But it would be really fun for me if I got a call and it was like, listen, we need somebody in today. Can you just come in and play for the, for the rehearsal? I mean, that would be a great time. For me. Yeah. One of the things we didn't, uh, I know you just mentioned it in passing, that you actually pay, played in a rock band. Is it a rock band? Uh, a band, anyway. 
Yeah, uh, that's the one that you was out in. Um, where was it? Um, that you you went every weekend or so, right? Yeah, we yeah. sometimes we had a gig a month. Some often we had two gigs per month. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I played with this band called Fool's Paradise. That's and, it. And Fool's Paradise. And they are just, let me tell you, they are just the greatest guys that you could play with. Yeah. Just the most lovely guys. And and awesome music. Man, did we play some fun. We just played the best rock hits from like the past 50 years. We just played the best music. But um, I, I don't really play with them anymore. Most of the gigs were, were like in the suburbs in Milton. And um, I, I, actually, I actually just found it too exhausting to keep doing it. And so I... I might do the odd gig with them here now and then, but uh, that, that's basically that part of my life is basically over now. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Uh, I know you post your um, you post your uh, arrangements sometimes, like the flight of the bumblebee. You post them on Facebook as well, or your Facebook. I mean, do you use social media any more than that than we've just discussed? Or no, I don't. Yeah. Okay, I, I would have nothing to to really discuss about social media. I don't use Twitter. I don't use Instagram. I know it's mostly we see it on Facebook and then you post it on your site and yeah, yeah. All right. So we're coming to the end of the uh, interview, which has been really fascinating. Thank you so much. What, is, what are two tips that you would give just off the top of your head from your experience, any creative person who'd like to either do what you're doing, either as a hobby, you know, as part of, because a lot of us are doing it in addition to our um, our day job, sometimes with hopes to make it more, sometimes just, okay, we're just going to do the two at the same time. Why leave one for the other? But basically people who want to live a more creative life or maybe having, not knowing where to start. I mean, do you have any, any tips, two tips for, for yep. people? Yeah, yeah, you have to meet people. And so wh- whatever you want to do, this is Toronto. There's going to be at least 100 other people who want to do exactly what you do uh, and, and who already do it. Meetup.com. Good point. Meetup.com. So, so I decided that I wanted to learn. As I discussed, it's hard for me to actually practice classical pieces. And I decided if I just sign up for something, then at least I'll practice. And I signed up for a group. It's just like an amateur classical piano recital on meetup.com. And I played at two of their concerts, actually. Um, and right away I met 30 other people who do exactly what I do. It is really easy to find a lot of people who do, unless you do something very, very niche, it's very easy to find a lot of people who love exactly what you love in Toronto and meetup.com is one of the best ways I know to do it. Yeah. Cause you can get it for any interest group or any, anything you're interested in, right? Find a bunch of people who are doing it. So that's a really, really good, good point. So, so that's the first one. Meet, meet people. Anything else? Meet people. Um, meet <laughs> that might have to be the second one as well. Okay, so meet people. You've got to meet people who are um, interested in, in in what you do and who are doing it already. And two, one of the best places. Oh, I guess that. I guess I have an, I I do have a number two. Okay, what's that? Go for it. You got to put your time in. The only way to put your time in is you have to be motivated. And if if you don't have that motivation, you can't. I could, like I said, I couldn't put my time in for learning jazz. I just didn't have the motivation for it. But when I was a kid, I did have the motivation for sight reading. Yeah. So, you know, the better you get and the better you are to work with, the more calls you'll start to get. Yeah. Especially being good to work with. Right. People remember that. and People like that. Nobody likes difficult people. Right. It's quite funny. As, as a piano player, it's it's easy to be easy to work with. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's It can be quite passive. As a piano player, I just show up. I don't say anything and I play when I'm told to play. <laughs> No joke. Yeah. And 
And if you're good, it means you can usually adapt to what people need right away. Because when you're when you're playing for any rehearsal, they don't want to waste time. They don't want to have to spend time explaining things to you. Exactly. And if you can just pick it up right away, they love you for it. Yes. Okay. So um, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share? Because we're coming to the end of the interview now. Which, you know. I, I was just thinking it was funny how we were like, how is this going to take an hour? And here we are two, two hours into it. I told you it's an hour and 38 minutes now. Um, I told Mickey, you. You make me feel like a good storyteller. You are a which good storyteller. Which means you're doing a great job. You are a good storyteller. And you know what? It's funny. When I'm uh, just to, to go on that point, when I first started doing these, because I've interviewed quite a few artists now. And I always think, oh, it'll be around an hour. But when you're listening to people talk about, you know, things that matter to them and talk about their life, really an hour or whatever, it's really small when you consider people's lives and the rich history and stories that they have. I mean, we probably haven't even scratched the surface, you know, but that will take like a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, of course. So when you think about about it in that context it's like i don't want to rush people to you know just rush over things i really want i really want to hear otherwise otherwise i wouldn't have asked to you know to interview and to talk to you and i mean even though i've known you for like 10 years i still found out things about you that i didn't really know right so it's really about you well, podcasts are, are great for that reason because there's no time limit. There's no time limit. You can listen to it as you're doing something else. It's not like it's uh, it takes that time away from something else and you have to spend the time and look at it. Whereas you can be driving and listening to a podcast. And I've listened to whole books and audio books like that. I think it's just brilliant. People who know you, but some people will be hearing about you for the first time. And uh, I'm just really happy to share that. Right. Yeah, I will. I will post it on my Facebook and maybe get those eleven hits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eleven hits, maybe twelve. <laughs> That'd be something, wouldn't it? Yeah, Mickey, it's been, it's been a pleasure, it's and thank you so much for inviting me to uh, talk about this stuff. No, I know it's. Uh, you just don't know what will happen until until it happens, right? So um, I've just found I just have found it very very fascinating, extremely fascinating. I mean that's. And I have said I've always wanted to interview you and talk about your music and your theatre directing more. So I found fantastic. Okay, so we're going to bring this particular interview to a close. And I want to say to everybody, thank you very much for listening into this podcast, or you will be listening to it when it's when it's published. And I want to thank you, Matt, for giving up your time this morning and for sharing sharing with us. The Take care of yourselves. Matt, thank you so much. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thank you for interviewing You're very welcome. So, everybody, this is the end of uh, another Mickey Jameson Art Talks. Take care of yourself and see you next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Mickey Jameson Art Talks with my guest, pianist and music theatre director, Matthew Craig. I hope you enjoyed our interview. You can find me, Nikki Jameson, at nickyjameson.com, Nikki Jameson Art, or follow me, Nikki J, on Instagram. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and see you next time. <laughs>